Hello, and welcome to Family Folktales from the Nashville Public Library. I'm Susan Poulter, a librarian at the Main Library. Today I'll be reading The Adventures of Harun al-Rashid, Caliph of Baghdad, The Story of the Blind Baba Abdallah, and The Story of Sidi Numan. This is part 12 of our stories from The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. The Adventures of Harun al-Rashid, Caliph of Baghdad The Caliph Harun al-Rashid sat in his palace, wondering if there was anything left in the world that could possibly give him a few hours' amusement. When Jafar, the Grand Vizier, his old and tried friend, suddenly appeared before him. Bowing low, he waited, as was his duty, till his master spoke. But Harun al-Rashid merely turned his head and looked at him, and sank back into his former weary posture. Now Jafar had something of importance to say to the caliph, and had no intention of being put off by mere silence. So with another low bow in front of the throne, he began to speak. Commander of the faithful, said he, I have taken on myself to remind your highness that you have undertaken secretly to observe for yourself the manner in which justice is done and order is kept throughout the city. This is the day you have set apart to devote to this object, and perhaps in fulfilling this duty you may find some distraction from the melancholy to which, as I see to my sorrow, you are prey. You are right, returned the caliph. I had forgotten all about it. Go and change your coat, and I will change mine. A few moments later, they both re-entered the hall, disguised as foreign merchants, and passed through a secret door out into the open country. Here they turned towards the Euphrates, and crossing the river in a small boat, walked through that part of the town which lay along the further bank, without seeing anything to call for their interference. Much pleased with the peace and good order of the city, the caliph and his vizier made their way to a bridge, which led straight back to the palace and had already crossed it when they were stopped by an old and blind man who begged for alms. The caliph gave him a piece of money and was passing on, but the blind man seized his hand and held him fast. Charitable person, he said, whoever you may be, grant me yet another prayer. Strike me, I beg of you, one blow. I have deserved it richly, and even a more severe penalty. The caliph, much surprised at this request, replied gently, My good man, that which you ask is impossible. Of what use would my alms be if I treated you so ill? and as he spoke he tried to loosen the grasp of the blind beggar. My lord, answered the man, pardon my boldness and my persistence. Take back your money or give me the blow which I crave. I have sworn a solemn oath that I will receive nothing without receiving chastisement, and if you knew all, you would feel that the punishment is not a tenth part of what I deserve. 
moved by these words, and perhaps still more by the fact that he had other business to attend to, the caliph yielded and struck him lightly on the shoulder. Then he continued his road, followed by the blessing of the blind man. When they were out of earshot, he said to the vizier, There must be something very odd to make that man act so. I should like to find out what is the reason. Go back to him, tell him who I am, and order him to come without fail to the palace tomorrow, after the hour of evening prayer. So the grand vizier went back to the bridge, gave the blind beggar first a piece of money and then a blow, delivered the caliph's message, and rejoined his master. They passed on towards the palace, but walking through a square they came upon a crowd watching a young and well-dressed man who was urging a horse at full speed round the open space, using at the same time his spurs and whips so unmercifully that the animal was all covered with foam and blood. The caliph, astonished at this proceeding, inquired of a passerby what it all meant, but no one could tell him anything, except that every day at the same hour the same thing took place. Still wondering, he passed on, and for the moment had to content himself with telling the vizier to command the horseman also to appear before him at the same time as the blind man. The next day, after evening prayer, the caliph entered the hall and was followed by the vizier, bringing with him the two men of whom we have spoken, and a third with whom we have nothing to do. They all bowed themselves low before the throne, and then the caliph bade them rise and asked the blind man his name. Baba Abdallah, your highness, said he. Baba Abdallah, returned the caliph, your way of asking alms yesterday seemed to me so strange that I almost commanded you then and there to cease from causing such a public scandal. But I have sent for you to inquire what was your motive in making such a curious vow. When I know the reason, I shall be able to judge whether you can be permitted to continue to practice it, for I cannot help thinking that it sets a very bad example to others. Tell me, therefore, the whole truth, and conceal nothing. These words troubled the heart of Baba Abdallah, who prostrated himself at the feet of the caliph. Then rising, he answered, Commander of the faithful, I crave your pardon humbly for my persistence in beseeching your highness to do an action which appears on the face of it to be without any meaning. No doubt in the eyes of men it has none, but I look on it as a slight expiation for a fearful sin of which I have been guilty. And if your highness will deign to listen to my tale, you will see that no punishment could atone for the crime. The Story of the Blind Baba Abdallah I was born, Commander of the Faithful, in Baghdad, and was left an orphan while I was yet a very young man, for my parents died within a few days of each other. I had inherited from them a small fortune, which I worked hard night and day to increase, till at last I found myself the owner of eighty camels. These I hired out 
to traveling merchants, whom I frequently accompanied on their various journeys, and always returned with large profits. One day I was coming back from Balsara, whither I had taken a supply of goods intended for India, and halted at noon in a lonely place which promised rich pasture for my camels. I was resting in the shade under a tree when a dervish going on foot towards Balsora sat down by my side, and I inquired whence he had come and to what place he was going. We soon made friends, and after we had asked each other the usual questions, we produced the food we had with us and satisfied our hunger. While we were eating, the dervish happened to mention that in a spot only a little way off from where we were sitting, there was hidden a treasure so great that if my eighty camels were loaded till they could carry no more, the hiding place would seem as full as if it had never been touched. At this news, I became almost beside myself with joy and greed, and I flung my arms round the neck of the dervish, exclaiming, Good dervish, I see plainly that the riches of this world are nothing to you. Therefore, of what use is the knowledge of this treasure to you? Alone and on foot, you could carry away a mere handful. But tell me where it is, and I will load my eighty camels with it, and give you one of them as a token of my gratitude. Certainly my offer does not sound very magnificent, but it was great to me, for at his words a wave of covetousness had swept over my heart, and I almost felt as if the seventy-nine camels that were left were nothing in comparison. The dervish saw quite well what was passing in my mind, but he did not show what he thought of my proposal. My brother, he answered quietly, you know as well as I do that you are behaving unjustly. It was open to me to keep my secret and to reserve the treasure for myself. But the fact that I have told you of its existence shows that I had confidence in you and that I hoped to earn your gratitude forever by making your fortune as well as mine. But before I reveal to you the secret of the treasure, you must swear that, after we have loaded the camels with as much as they can carry, you will give half to me and let us go our own ways. I think you will see that this is fair, for if you present me with forty camels, I, on my side, will give you the means of buying a thousand more. I could not, of course, deny that what the dervish said was perfectly reasonable. But in spite of that, the thought that the dervish would be as rich as I was was unbearable to me. Still, there was no use in discussing the matter, and I had to accept his conditions or bewail to the end of my life the loss of immense wealth. So I collected my camels, and we set out together under the guidance of the dervish. After walking some time, we reached what looked like a valley, but with such a narrow entrance that my camels could only pass one by one. The little valley or open space was shut up by two mountains whose sides were formed of straight cliffs which no human being could climb. 
when we were exactly between these mountains. The dervish stopped. Make your camels lie down in this open space, he said, so that we can easily load them. Then we will go to the treasure. I did what I was bid and rejoined the dervish whom I found trying to kindle a fire out of some dry wood. As soon as it was alight, he threw on it a handful of perfumes and pronounced a few words that I did not understand. And immediately a thick column of smoke rose high into the air. He separated the smoke into two columns, and then I saw a rock, which stood like a pillar between the two mountains, slowly open, and a splendid palace appear within. But, commander of the faithful, the love of gold had taken such possession of my heart that I could not even stop to examine the riches, but fell upon the first pile of gold within my reach and began to heap it into a sack that I had brought with me. The dervish likewise set to work, but I soon noticed that he confined himself to collecting precious stones, and I felt I should be wise to follow his example. At length, the camels were loaded with as much as they could carry, and nothing remained but to seal up the treasure and go our ways. Before, however, this was done, the dervish went up to a great golden vase, beautifully chased, and took from it a small wooden box, which he hid in the bosom of his dress, merely saying that it contained a special kind of ointment. Then he once more kindled the fire, threw on the perfume, and murmured the unknown spell, and the rock closed and stood whole as before. The next thing was to divide the camels and to charge them with the treasure, after which we each took command of our own and marched out of the valley, till we reached the place in the high road where the roots diverge. And then we parted, the dervish going towards Balsora and I to Baghdad. We embraced each other tenderly, and I poured out my gratitude for the honor he had done me in singling me out for this great wealth. And having said a hearty farewell, we turned our backs and hastened after our camels. I had hardly come up with mine when the demon of envy filled my soul. What does a dervish want with riches like that, I said to myself. He alone has the secret of the treasure and can always get as much as he wants. And I halted my camels by the roadside and ran back after him. I was a quick runner, and it did not take me very long to come up with him. My brother, I exclaimed as soon as I could speak, almost at the moment of our leave-taking, a reflection occurred to me, which is perhaps new to you. You are a dervish by profession and live a very quiet life, only caring to do good and careless of the things of this world. You do not realize the burden that you lay upon yourself when you gather into your hands such great wealth, besides the fact that no one who is not accustomed to camels from his birth can ever manage the stubborn beasts. If you are wise... You will not encumber yourself with more than thirty, and you will find those trouble enough. You are right, replied the dervish, who understood me quite well, but did not wish to fight the matter. 
I confess that I had not thought about it. Choose any ten you like and drive them before you. I selected ten of the best camels, and we proceeded along the road to rejoin those that I had left behind. I had got what I wanted, but I found the dervish so easy to deal with that I rather regretted I had not asked for ten more. I looked back. He had only gone a few paces, and I called after him, My brother, I said, I am unwilling to part from you without pointing out what I think you scarcely grasp. That large experience of camel driving is necessary to anybody who intends to keep together a troop of thirty. In your own interest, I feel sure you would be much happier if you entrusted ten more of them to me. For with my practice, it is all one to me if I take two or a hundred. As before, the dervish made no difficulties, and I drove off my ten camels in triumph, only leaving him with twenty for his share. I had now sixty, and anyone might have imagined that I should be content. But, commander of the faithful, there is a proverb that says, The more one has, the more one wants. So it was with me. I could not rest as long as one solitary camel remained to the dervish. And returning to him, I redoubled my prayers and embraces and promises of eternal gratitude till the last twenty were in my hands. Make a good use of them, my brother, said the holy man. Remember, riches sometimes have wings if we keep them for ourselves and the poor are at our gates expressly that we may help them. My eyes were so blinded by gold that I paid no heed to his wise counsel and only looked about for something else to grasp. Suddenly I remembered the little box of ointment that the dervish had hidden and which most likely contained a treasure more precious than all the rest. Giving him one last embrace, I observed accidentally, What are you going to do with that little box of ointment? It seems hardly worth taking with you. You might as well let me have it. And really, a dervish who has given up the world has no need of ointment. Oh, if only he had refused my request. But then, supposing he had, I should have got possession of it by force, so great was the madness that had laid hold upon me. However, far from refusing it, the dervish at once held it out, saying gracefully, Take it, my friend, and if there is anything else I can do to make you happy, you must let me know. Directly the box was in my hands, I wrenched off the cover. As you are so kind, I said, tell me, I pray you, what are the virtues of this ointment? They are most curious and interesting, replied the dervish. If you apply a little of it to your left eye, you will behold in an instant all the treasures hidden in the bowels of the earth. But beware lest you touch your right eye with it, or your sight will be destroyed forever. His words excited my curiosity to the highest pitch. Make trial on me, I implore you, I cried, holding out the box to the dervish. You will know how to do it better than I. I am burning with impatience to test its charms. 
the dervish took the box I had extended to him, and, bidding me shut my left eye, touched it gently with the ointment. When I opened it again, I saw, spread out, as if it were before me, treasures of every kind and without number. But as all this time I had been obliged to keep my right eye closed, which was very fatiguing, I begged the dervish to apply the ointment to that eye also. If you insist upon it, I will do it, answered the dervish. But you must remember what I told you just now, that if it touches your right eye, you will become blind on the spot. Unluckily, in spite of my having proved the truth of the dervish's words in so many instances, I was firmly convinced that he was now keeping concealed from me some hidden and precious virtue of the ointment, so I turned a deaf ear to all he said. My brother, I replied, smiling, I see you are joking. It is not natural that the same ointment should have two such exactly opposite effects. It is true all the same, answered the dervish, and it would be well for you if you believed my word. But I would not believe, and, dazzled by the greed of avarice, I thought that if one eye could show me riches, the other might teach me how to get possession of them, and I continued to press the dervish to anoint my right eye. But this he resolutely declined to do. After having conferred such benefits on you, said he, I am loth indeed to work you such evil. Think what it is to be blind, and do not force me to do what you will repent as long as you live. It was of no use. My brother, I said firmly, pray say no more, but do what I ask. You have most generously responded to my wishes up to this time. Do not spoil my recollection of you for a thing of such little consequence. Let what will happen. I take it on my own head and will never reproach you. Since you are determined upon it, he answered with a sigh, there is no use talking. And taking the ointment, he laid some on my right eye, which was tight shut. When I tried to open it, Heavy clouds of darkness floated before me. I was as blind as you see me now. Miserable dervish, I shrieked. So it is true after all. Into what a bottomless pit has my lust after gold plunged me. Ah, now that my eyes are closed, they are really opened. I know that all my sufferings are caused by myself alone. But, good brother, you who are so kind and charitable, and know the secrets of such vast learning, have you nothing that will give me back my sight? Unhappy man, replied the dervish, it is not my fault that this has befallen you, but it is a just chastisement. The blindness of your heart has wrought the blindness of your body. Yes, I have secrets that you have seen in the short time that we have known each other. But I have none that will give you back your sight. You have proved yourself unworthy of the riches that were given you. Now they have passed into my hands, whence they will flow into the hands of others less greedy and ungrateful than you. The dervish said no more and left me, 
speechless with shame and confusion, and so wretched that I stood rooted to the spot while he collected the eighty camels and proceeded on his way to Balsora. It was in vain that I entreated him not to leave me, but at least to take me within reach of the first passing caravan. He was deaf to my prayers and cries, and I should soon have been dead of hunger and misery if some merchants had not come along the track the following day and kindly brought me back to Baghdad. From a rich man I had in one moment become a beggar, and up to this time I have lived solely on the alms that have been bestowed on me. But in order to expiate the sin of avarice, which was my undoing, I oblige each passerby to give me a blow. This, commander of the faithful, is my story. When the blind man had ended, the caliph addressed him, Baba Abdallah, truly your sin is great, but you have suffered enough. Henceforth, repent in private, for I will see that enough money is given you day by day for all your wants. At these words, Baba Abdallah flung himself at the caliph's feet and prayed that honor and happiness might be his portion forever. The Story of Sidi Numan The caliph Harun al-Rashid was much pleased with the tale of the blind man and the dervish, and when it was finished, he turned to the young man who had ill-treated his horse and inquired his name also. The young man replied that he was called Sidi Numan. Sidi Numan, observed the caliph, I have seen horses broken all my life long and have even broken them myself. But I have never seen any horse broken in such a barbarous manner as by you yesterday. Everyone who looked on was indignant and blamed you loudly. As for myself, I was so angry that I was very nearly disclosing who I was and putting a stop to it at once. Still, you have not the air of a cruel man, and I would gladly believe that you did not act in this way without some reason. As I am told that it was not the first time, and indeed that every day you are seen to be flogging and spurring your horse, I wish to come to the bottom of the matter. But tell me the whole truth, and conceal nothing. Sidi Numan changed color as he heard these words, and his manner grew confused. But he saw plainly there was no help for it, so he prostrated himself before the throne of the caliph and tried to obey, but the words stuck in his throat, and he remained silent. The caliph, accustomed though he was to instant obedience, guessed something of what was passing in the young man's mind and sought to put him at his ease. Sidi Numan, he said, do not think of me as the caliph, but merely as a friend who would like to hear your story. If there is anything in it that you are afraid may offend me, take courage, for I pardon you beforehand. Speak then openly and without fear, as to one who knows and loves you. Reassured by the kindness of the caliph, Sidi Numan at length began his tale. Commander of the faithful, said he, dazzled though I am by the luster of your highness's presence, 
I will do my best to satisfy your wishes. I am by no means perfect, but I am not naturally cruel, neither do I take pleasure in breaking the law. I admit that the treatment of my horse is calculated to give your highness a bad opinion of me and to set an evil example to others. Yet I have not chastised it without reason, and I have hopes that I shall be judged more worthy of pity than punishment. Commander of the Faithful, I will not trouble to describe my birth. It is not of sufficient distinction to deserve your highness's attention. My ancestors were careful people, and I inherited enough money to enable me to live comfortably, though without show. Having therefore a modest fortune, the only thing wanting to my happiness was a wife who could return my affection. But this blessing I was not destined to get. For on the very day after my marriage, my bride began to try my patience in every way that was most hard to bear. Now, seeing that the customs of our land oblige us to marry without ever beholding the person with whom we are to pass our lives, a man has, of course, no right to complain as long as his wife is not absolutely repulsive or is not positively deformed. And whatever defects her body may have, pleasant ways and good behavior will go far to remedy them. The first time I saw my wife unveiled, when she had been brought to my house with the usual ceremonies, I was enchanted to find that I had not been deceived in regard to the account that had been given me of her beauty. I began my married life in high spirits and the best hopes of happiness. The following day a grand dinner was served to us, but as my wife did not appear, I ordered a servant to call her. Still she did not come, and I waited impatiently for some time. At last she entered the room, and we took our places at the table, and plates of rice were set before us. I ate mine, as was natural, with a spoon. But great was my surprise to notice that my wife, instead of doing the same, drew from her pocket a little case, from which she selected a long pin, and by the help of this pin conveyed her rice grain by grain to her mouth. Amina, I exclaimed in astonishment, is that the way you eat rice at home? And did you do it because your appetite was so small? Or did you wish to count the grains so that you might never eat more than a certain number? If it was from economy and you are anxious to teach me not to be wasteful, you have no cause for alarm. We shall never ruin ourselves in that way. Our fortune is large enough for all our needs. Therefore, dear Amina, do not seek to check yourself, but eat as much as you desire as I do. In reply to my affectionate words, I expected a cheerful answer. Yet Amina said nothing at all, but continued to pick her rice as before, only at longer and longer intervals. And instead of trying the other dishes, all she did was to put every now and then a crumb of bread into her mouth that would not have made a meal for a sparrow. I felt provoked by her obstinacy, but to excuse her to myself as far as I could, 
I suggested that perhaps she had never been used to eat in the company of men, and that her family might have taught her that she ought to behave prudently and discreetly in the presence of her husband. Likewise, that she might either have dined already or intend to do so in her own apartments. So I took no further notice, and when I had finished, left the room, secretly much vexed at her strange conduct. The same thing happened at supper, and all through the next day, whenever we ate together. It was quite clear that no woman could live upon two or three breadcrumbs and a few grains of rice, and I determined to find out how and when she got food. I pretended not to pay attention to anything she did, in the hope that little by little she would get accustomed to me and become more friendly. But I soon saw that my expectations were quite in vain. One night I was lying with my eyes closed and to all appearance sound asleep, when Amina arose softly and dressed herself without making the slightest sound. I could not imagine what she was going to do, and as my curiosity was great, I made up my mind to follow her. When she was fully dressed, she stole quietly from the room. The instant she had let the curtain fall behind her, I flung a garment on my shoulders and a pair of slippers on my feet. Looking from a lattice which opened into the court, I saw her in the act of passing through the street door, which she carefully left open. It was bright moonlight, so I easily managed to keep her in sight till she entered a cemetery not far from the house. There I hid myself under the shadow of the wall and crouched down cautiously, and hardly was I concealed when I saw myself approaching in company with a ghoul, one of those demons which, as your highness is aware, wander about the country, making their lairs in deserted buildings and springing out upon unwary travelers whose flesh they eat. If no live being goes their way, they then betake themselves to the cemeteries and feed upon the dead bodies. I was nearly struck dumb with horror on seeing my wife with this hideous female ghoul. They passed by me without noticing me, began to dig up a corpse which had been buried that day, and then sat down on the edge of the grave to enjoy their frightful repast, talking quietly and cheerfully all the while, though I was too far off to hear what they said. When they had finished, they threw back the body into the grave and heaped back the earth upon it. I made no effort to disturb them, and returned quickly to the house, when I took care to leave the door open as I'd previously found it. Then I got back into bed and pretended to sleep soundly. A short time after, Amina entered as quietly as she had gone out. She undressed and stole into bed, congratulating herself apparently on the cleverness with which she had managed her expedition. As may be guessed, after such a scene it was long before I could close my eyes, and at the first sound which called the faithful to prayer, I put on my clothes and went to the mosque. But even prayer did not restore peace to my troubled spirit, and I could not face my wife, 
until I had made up my mind what future course I should pursue in regard to her. I therefore spent the morning roaming about from one garden to another, turning over various plans for compelling my wife to give up her horrible ways. I thought of using violence to make her submit, but felt reluctant to be unkind to her. Besides, I had an instinct that gentle means had the best chance of success. So, a little soothed, I turned towards home, which I reached about the hour of dinner. As soon as I appeared, Amina ordered dinner to be served, and we sat down together. As usual, she persisted in only picking a few grains of rice, and I resolved to speak to her at once of what lay so heavily on my heart. Amina, I said as quietly as possible, you must have guessed the surprise I felt when the day after our marriage you declined to eat anything but a few morsels of rice and altogether behaved in such a manner that most husbands would have been deeply wounded. However, I had patience with you and only tried to tempt your appetite by the choicest dishes I could invent, but all to no purpose. Still, Amina, it seems to me that there be something among them as sweet to the taste as the flesh of a corpse. I had no sooner uttered these words than Amina, who instantly understood that I had followed her to the graveyard, was seized with a passion beyond any that I have ever witnessed. Her face became purple, her eyes looked as if they would start from her head, and she positively foamed with rage. I watched her with terror, wondering what would happen next, but little thinking what would be the end of her fury. She seized a vessel of water that stood at hand, and, plunging her hand in it, murmured some words which I failed to catch. Then, sprinkling it on my face, she cried madly, Wretch, receive the reward of your prying and become a dog. The words were not out of her mouth when, without feeling conscious that any change was passing over me, I suddenly knew that I had ceased to be a man. In the greatness of the shock and surprise, for I had no idea that Amina was a magician, I never dreamed of running away and stood rooted to the spot, while Amina grasped a stick and began to beat me. Indeed, her blows were so heavy that I only wonder that they did not kill me at once. However, they succeeded in rousing me from my stupor, and I dashed into the courtyard, followed closely by Amina, who made frantic dives at me, which I was not quick enough to dodge. At last she got tired of pursuing me, or else a new trick entered into her head which would give me speedy and painful death. She opened the gate leading into the street, intending to crush me as I passed through. Dog though I was, I saw through her design, and stung into presence of mind by the greatness of danger, I timed my movements so well that I contrived to rush through, and only the tip of my tail received a squeeze as she banged the gate. I was safe, but my tail hurt me horribly, and I yelped and howled so loud all along the streets that the other dogs came and attacked me which made matters no better. In order to avoid them, 
I took refuge in a cook shop where tongues and sheep's heads were sold. At first, the owner showed me great kindness and drove away the other dogs that were still at my heels while I crept into the darkest corner. But though I was safe for the moment, I was not destined to remain long under his protection, for he was one of those who hold all dogs to be unclean, and that all the washing in the world will hardly purify you from their contact. So after my enemies had gone to seek other prey, he tried to lure me from my corner in order to force me into the street. But I refused to come out of my hole and spent the night in sleep which I sorely needed after the pain inflicted on me by Amina. I have no wish to weary your highness by dwelling on the sad thoughts which accompanied my change of shape, but it may interest you to hear that the next morning my host went out early to do his marketing and returned laden with the sheep's heads and tongues and trotters that formed his stock in trade for the day. The smell of meat attracted various hungry dogs in the neighborhood, and they gathered round the door begging for some bits. I stole out of my corner and stood with them. In spite of his objection to dogs as unclean animals, my protector was a kind-hearted man, and knowing I had eaten nothing since yesterday, he threw me bigger and better bits than those which fell to the share of the other dogs. When I had finished, I tried to go back into the shop, but this he would not allow, and stood so firmly at the entrance with a stout stick that I was forced to give up and seek some other home. A few paces further on was a baker's shop which seemed to have a gay and merry man for a master. At that moment he was having his breakfast, and though I gave no signs of hunger, he at once threw me a piece of bread. Before gobbling it up, as most dogs are in the habit of doing, I bowed my head and wagged my tail in token of thanks, and he understood and smiled pleasantly. I really did not want the bread at all, but felt it would be ungracious to refuse, so I ate it slowly in order that he might see that I only did it out of politeness. He understood this also, and seemed quite willing to let me stay in his shop, so I sat down with my face to the door to show that I only asked his protection. This he gave me, and indeed encouraged me to come into the house itself, giving me a corner where I might sleep without being in anybody's way. The kindness heaped on me by this excellent man was far greater than I could ever have expected. He was always affectionate in his manner of treating me, and I shared his breakfast, dinner, and supper, while, on my side, I gave him all the gratitude and attachment to which he had a right. I sat with my eyes fixed on him, and he never left the house without having me at his heels. And if it ever happened that when he was preparing to go out I was asleep and did not notice, he would call Rufus, Rufus, for that was the name he gave me. Some weeks passed in this way, when one day a woman came in to buy bread. In paying for it, she laid down several pieces of money, one of which was bad. The baker perceived this and declined to take it, demanding another in its place. The woman, for her part, refused to take it back, declaring it was perfectly good. 
but the baker would have nothing to do with it. It is really such a bad imitation, he exclaimed at last, that even my dog would not be taken in. Here, Rufus, Rufus. And hearing his voice, I jumped onto the counter. The baker threw down the money before me and said, Find out if there is a bad coin. I looked at each in turn and then laid my paw on the false one, glancing at the same time at my master so as to point it out. The baker, who had of course been only in joke, was exceedingly surprised at my cleverness, and the woman, who was at last convinced that the man spoke the truth, produced another piece of money in its place. When she had gone, my master was so pleased that he told all of the neighbors what I had done and made a great deal more of it than there really was. The neighbors, very naturally, declined to believe his story and tried me several times with all the bad money they could collect together, but I never failed to stand the test triumphantly. Soon the shop was filled from morning till night with people who, on the pretense of buying bread, came to see if I was as clever as I was reported to be. The baker drove a roaring trade and admitted that I was worth my weight in gold to him. Of course, there were plenty who envied him his large custom, and many was the pitfall set for me, so that he never dared to let me out of his sight. One day a woman, who had not been in the shop before, came to ask for bread like the rest. As usual, I was lying on the counter, and she threw down six coins before me, one of which was false. I detected it at once and put my paw on it, looking as I did so at the woman. Yes, she said, nodding her head. You are quite right. That is the one. She stood gazing at me attentively for some time, then paid for the bread and left the shop, making a sign for me to follow her secretly. Now my thoughts were always running on some means of shaking off the spell laid on me, and noticing the way in which this woman had looked at me, the idea entered my head that perhaps she might have guessed what had happened, and in this I was not deceived. However, I let her go on a little way, and merely stood at the door watching her. She turned, and seeing that I was quite still, again beckoned to me. The baker all this while was busy with his oven and had forgotten all about me, so I stole out softly and ran after the woman. When we came to her house, which was some distance off, she opened the door and then said to me, Come in, come in. You'll never be sorry that you followed me. When I had entered, she fastened the door and took me into a large room where a beautiful girl was working at a piece of embroidery. My daughter, exclaimed my guide, I have brought you the famous dog belonging to the baker which can tell good money from bad. You know that when I first heard of him, I told you I was sure he must really be a man, changed into a dog by magic. Today I went to the baker's to prove for myself the truth of the story and persuaded the dog to follow me here. Now, what do you say? You are right, mother, replied the girl, and rising, she dipped her hand into a vessel of water. Then, sprinkling it over me, she said, 
If you were born a dog, remain a dog. But if you were born a man, by virtue of this water, resume your proper form. In one moment, the spell was broken. The dog's shape vanished as if it had never been, and it was a man who stood before her. Overcome with gratitude at my deliverance, I flung myself at her feet and kissed the hem of her garment. How can I thank you for your goodness towards a stranger, and for what you have done? Henceforth I am your slave. Deal with me as you will. Then, in order to explain how I came to be changed into a dog, I told her my whole story, and finished with rendering the mother the thanks due to her for the happiness she had brought me. Sidi Numan, returned the daughter, say no more about the obligation you are under to us. The knowledge that we have been of service to you is ample payment. Let us speak of Amina, your wife, with whom I was acquainted before her marriage. I was aware that she was a magician, and she knew, too, that I had studied the same art under the same mistress. We met often going to the same baths, but we did not like each other and never sought to become friends. As to what concerns you, it is not enough to have broken your spell. She must be punished for her wickedness. Remain for a moment with my mother, I beg, she added hastily. I will return shortly. Left alone with the mother, I again expressed the gratitude I felt to her as well as to her daughter. My daughter, she answered, is, as you see, as accomplished a magician as Amina herself. But you would be astonished at the amount of good she does by her knowledge. That is why I have never interfered. Otherwise, I should have put a stop to it long ago. As she spoke, her daughter entered the room with a small bottle in her hand. Sidi Numan, she said, the books I have just consulted tell me that Amina is not home at present, but she should return at any moment. I have likewise found out by their means that she pretends before the servants great uneasiness as to your absence. She has circulated a story that, while at dinner with her, you remembered some important business that had to be done at once and left the house without shutting the door. By this means, a dog had strayed in, which she was forced to get rid of by a stick. Go home, then, without delay, and await Amina's return in your room. When she comes in, go down to meet her, and in her surprise, she will try to run away. Then have this bottle ready, and dash the water it contains over her, saying boldly, Receive the reward of your crimes. That is all I have to tell you. Everything happened exactly as the young magician had foretold. I had not been in my house many minutes before Amina returned. And as she approached, I stepped in front of her with the water in my hand. She gave one loud cry and turned to the door, but she was too late. I had already dashed the water in her face and spoken the magic words. Amina disappeared, and in her place stood the horse you saw me beating yesterday. This, Commander of the Faithful, is my story. And may I venture to hope that, 
Now you have heard the reason of my conduct. Your Highness will not think this wicked woman too harshly treated. Sidi Numan, replied the caliph, your story is indeed a strange one, and there is no excuse to be offered for your wife. But without condemning your treatment of her, I wish you to reflect how much she must suffer from being changed into an animal, and I hope you will let that punishment be enough. I do not order you to insist upon the young magician finding the means to restore your wife to her human shape, because I know that when once women such as she begin to work evil, they never leave off, and I should only bring down on your head a vengeance far worse than the one you have undergone already. That was Part 12 of The Arabian Nights Entertainments, selected and edited by Andrew Lang. Special thanks to Ginger Sands for our theme music, you can find more of Ginger's music at iTunes or on her website at www.gingersands.com. And if you'd like to comment on today's story, send me an email. I can be reached at susan.polter, that's P-O-U-L-T-E-R, at nashville.gov. Thanks for listening.